Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Mike. Lauren. Let's go back about 10 years. When you thought of NVIDIA back then, what did you think of? Um, I think of big like CES press conferences with the company talking about things like Tegra supercomputing chips and these like big events that generally just served word soup. Can you, <laughs> that is very accurate. Can you <laughs> guess what the stock price of NVIDIA was then? I have no idea. Are you ready for it? Yeah. It was between three and five dollars. Uh, so what is it now? <laughs> it's hovering around eight hundred dollars. Oh my God, stop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh Seriously. My. Well, we don't own tech stocks here, so Sad for us, but what happened to NVIDIA? Basically, NVIDIA started to take over the computing world. Okay, we need to talk about why. We really do. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I'm Michael Colori. I am Wired's director of consumer tech and culture. And we're joined this week by Wired senior writer Will Knight who joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's on Zoom, and he has averted his eyes from the latest AI research paper to humor us on the Gadget Lab. Hi, Will. Hello. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we brought Will on because today we are talking about the wild rise of NVIDIA, the company that started in the 1990s selling graphics chips for video games on PCs. That is oversimplifying it a little, but basically from the earliest days. NVIDIA made a bet on accelerated computing versus general purpose computing, and they made custom chips that kind of turbocharged the functions of the personal computer. 
But as Mike and I were talking about, the NVIDIA of today is not your Gen X graphic chips maker. Its co-founder and chief executive, Jensen Huang, has consistently positioned the company right ahead of the curve. And right now, NVIDIA holds the majority of the market share of AI computing chips. It's also worth nearly $2 trillion. I had the chance to sit down with Jensen in recent months for a Wired story. And I'm sorry to disappoint all of you, but you're not going to hear those interviews here. You're going to have to read it in Wired. I might also recommend checking out the Acquired podcast for a very, very long multi-part series on NVIDIA that does end with a conversation with Jensen. But we wanted to give you the most clear-cut story here of how NVIDIA ended up where it did and what the future holds for it. So we should probably start with how NVIDIA started, right? And maybe not spend too long on it, but like talk about that era of the personal computer, the emergence of it in the 90s and how we kind of transitioned to this, right? Yes. So the company started in 1993, you said? That's Is correct. That right? it's, it's just about as old as Wired. <laughs> what was their big breakthrough that put them on the map? Well, we should go back to what PCs were like in the 1990s and specifically what games on PCs were like. Games were starting to become more popular, but they were powered by CPUs, central processing units. And then graphics were kind of like an also ran, right? Like these chips could also do graphics, but they weren't very good. And then NVIDIA had this idea to move more towards a customized or specialized unit, a graphics processing unit, which is how we get GPU. A lot of our listeners are going to know what this means, CPU and GPU and the differences, <laughs> but like other people just probably hear these acronyms all the time and don't fully understand what they mean and how they power a computer. So Jensen Huang was working at a company called LSI Logic at the time that NVIDIA was first conceived. And two of his friends, his co-founders, said to him, hey, let's start this dedicated graphics card company. And they convinced him. They convinced Jensen. He resigned from his other job, and they all started NVIDIA. And legend has it that they hatched this whole idea in a Denny's diner. And so that's 1993. NVIDIA begins. When we were all hanging out in Denny's diners. Right. I think some people still do. <laughs> Good for them. Uh, so how did it go? Did it go smoothly? Were there bumps? There were definitely some bumps in the road in the mid to late 1990s. One of the first chips that they put out was pretty much a failure, and the company nearly went bankrupt. They had to lay off uh, a lot of people, like something like close to 70% of the staff. Um, and then they had to come up with a plan for a new chip super, super quickly. But a lot of tech production cycles, you know, they're 18 to 24 months, and that was certainly the case for for chips. And NVIDIA didn't have that much runway. They also didn't have their own fab, you know, which is a place where you make all the chips. You're relying on partners to do this. You're like working with them hand in hand on the designs. And then they're sending chips to you and you're making tweaks and sending it back and stuff. And so it's a long process. So NVIDIA did something smart, which is they started using emulators. So they started kind of crafting this second chip that they had to launch like very quickly in software and testing it that way. And they were able to spin up something new within, I think it was six-ish months, called the Riva 128. And that basically saved the company in its earliest days. Wow. And there have been a few moments like that in NVIDIA's history where they've made a bet on this next thing that's going to happen. And you're sort of betting the farm. And uh, so far, they've just managed to like grow the farm. <laughs> It's like big ag now. It's it's massive. 
I want to ask Will a question about what a lot of people consider to be uh, the birth of like this modern era of AI, uh, which NVIDIA was a big part of. Can you can you tell us about what happened roughly 10, 12 years ago in the world of artificial intelligence computing? Yeah, sure. So so NVIDIA is sort of very much wound up in the, the origins of modern AI. And we sort of forget now because everything's machine learning based and um, AI algorithms so capable, but back in before 2010, 2012, the, um, people were coding all these things by hand to try and have machines do more intelligent tasks. And there was a group of people who focused on this neural network approach, which was totally out of vogue. It hadn't hadn't worked. It had been too, too um, puny to do anything very impressive. And they kept going on it. And around um, 2000. 10, there, there was this sort of confluence of enough data from the internet, um, these bigger neural network algorithms that were then which it was possible to run on um GPUs because they were very parallelized and that the kind of computations you want to do are inherently parallel. So um those people, those deep learning researchers figured out that they could supercharge their algorithms on GPUs. In 2012, there was this. Um, competition to try and see who could write an algorithm that could classify things in images best. Um, and the deep learning people suddenly blew everybody else out of the water and they were using GPUs to, to make that happen. And that kind of, it wasn't as if NVIDIA really foresaw that. It was just that their chips happened to be perfect for that task. And then I think Jensen ran with it. And then there was another moment in 2017, right, Will, when Google put out its Transformer paper. And that also was a pretty big catalyst for this new era of AI, and NVIDIA was a part of that, too. Right, yeah. So the, that Transformer paper was this new way to do machine learning on on language especially, and it was incredibly powerful. It turns out is what's given us all these language models with their remar remarkable capabilities. So in the run-up to that, it was a lot of image recognition, voice recognition, and you know, NVIDIA deserves a lot of credit for sort of um, building these tools that lo loads of people were jumping on. Um, and when the Transformer stuff ha happened, it, you know, it was the beginning of this generative AI language model chatbot era where things, you know, really gathered a lot of steam and took off massively, as we've seen. Yes. And now the industry is just exploding and you've got companies uh, competing, startups and large companies competing for computing power, right? Um, NVIDIA GPUs famously became very, very difficult to find for a few years. They were also used in Bitcoin mining and cryptocurrency mining. So they were like worth their, worth more than their weight in gold for a while. Um, the company is still trying to recover from this supply chain issue, right? They're still trying to flood the world with chips. But the thing that it seems like, Lauren, from the talk that you had with Jensen that he is most focused on as far as hardware goes in the future is doing this type of computing at scale, like doing data centers mm -hmm. just for AI and very large appliances that companies buy to do their own AI computations on site. Yeah, the data center business is already a pretty big business for NVIDIA. But when he and I first sat down in early January to talk about this, it was one of the first things he brought up. Like he had just gotten out of a meeting with a, a technology partner to talk about these AI data centers again. Um, and I think that's the simplest way to describe this is that 
the whole computing industry has really moved um, from on-device computing to cloud computing. So on-device is those old days of graphics cards jammed into your personal computer, and most, if not all, of the accelerated computing is happening there. And then with giant tech companies spinning up their cloud computing options like Google and Amazon, a lot of that computation has shifted to the cloud. Microsoft is a part of this too. So your inputs go from your computer to a server somewhere, and then the output comes back to your device. And this is part of what enables software to quote unquote scale so quickly. People in tech love using that word. <laughs> VCs love it. Everyone loves scale. Scale. That's um, where the money is. That's where it must scale up. We might have to get to scale up wired <laughs> one of these days. So NVIDIA is a part of that. And now it plans to develop more of these AI supercomputing data centers that help power not just software companies, but also manufacturers or self-driving cars or uh, biotech companies that are starting to use more and more AI. Nice. So, so the AI factory answer was, I thought it was really fascinating in, in your interview. And I think it probably also reflects the fact that um, as we've seen AI take off, a lot of the really key players in it that are doing the algorithms like Google, Meta, um, Microsoft, have started to build their own chips. And one of the things that they can do that is could potentially give them an advantage over or an edge over NVIDIA is build... They already build these data centers, so build, networking the chips all together. And he also talked about that networking company. But I think mm -hmm. the idea of building their own huge data centers, very, very much optimizing the networking and all this, this, these capabilities, so it reflects partly the fact that you have models that are so large that you need to network tens of thousands of chips as, as efficiently as you possibly can. Would you know was inconceivable a decade ago, but I think. It does. It does show that there's the kind of he, he's very smart about kind of preempting what could be a bit of a threat, as well as the opportunity to sort of deliver that AI to lots of different customers. And and the likes of Google are going to be trying to deliver that to those you know manufacturers and car makers and so on. So I thought that AI factory thing was very interesting. Yeah, Will brings up a good point. The Mellanox acquisition for Nvidia was a pretty savvy one because it provided that networking technology at the chip level. But some of the companies that Will mentioned also have incredibly deep pockets and probably have the technical capabilities to do something similar, build something similar, and they're certainly trying. So uh, we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about NVIDIA's competition. This podcast is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Each episode features insight you won't find anywhere else from the center of the conversation surrounding emerging technologies like AI. Right now on the podcast, you can hear a special episode where Brad Smith lays out Microsoft's vision for a vibrant marketplace driving the new AI economy. To hear more, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. 
That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I, N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. NVIDIA is at the top of the AI pile right now. It's supercomputing GPUs are in very high demand. It has built a solid moat around itself with this programming model, CUDA. It has those data centers we just talked about, and it's making strategic investments in other smaller AI companies. But what's stopping another big tech company from doing this? And in fact, others are. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, they all have a lot of cash and grand plans to accelerate their AI computing efforts. Will, who do you think is the most formidable competitor to NVIDIA? And maybe it's a company I haven't even named here. So, well, I think the most obvious formidable competitor is Google because it's been developing its own AI chips for a while. And it's obviously also a huge player in, in AI software. Um, and they're also, it's interesting what they're doing because NVIDIA might have the most powerful, most capable chips, but if you can network together several less powerful chips as if there's no, or if there's very minimal kind of um, bottleneck between them, you can you can do things more impressively. And Google's been focusing actually a lot of attention on that. It, it did a recent experiment where it could it showed it's possible to network 50,000 um, GPUs together to do language model training, and usually you do 10,000. That bottleneck is really important. So it, it basically increases the size of the overall supercomputer, even if you're, and even if your chips are not quite as cutting edge or powerful. Um, and they've been doing a bunch of interesting stuff with their own um, optical networking between chips to try and sort of speed that up. So I think they're a really, they're probably the one that's, um, you know, most most in mind. But other companies like, you know, Microsoft is trying to develop its own AI chips. Um, there are also, yeah, a bunch of startups like Cerebris and um, even ones doing things in non-conventional silicon that it could kind of blindside, I guess, NVIDIA at some point. But I think I think Google's the, the big one that Jensen's probably looking over his shoulder at. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that when Google announced its Gemini AI models, they left NVIDIA out of the announcement because they're now relying on its its TPU, its tensor processing units. Really? I'm going to bet on AWS as the dark horse here, uh, Amazon Web Services. I think that, you know, obviously they're, they've been working on this for a long time and they don't have as much to show for it. But I think that's they're holding their cards to lay them down at the right time. Interesting. Yeah. There was a very interesting um, announcement where... where Anthropic, one of these competitors to to OpenAI, which was founded by people from that company, um, got a huge investment from from Amazon, AWS, and part of that deal was that they were going to run their next model, their next competitor to to GPT four or five on Amazon Silicon. So that will show that that their silicon is is competitive, and that's going to be one of the ways they try and sort of sell that to all their customers. Yeah. Will, where do AMD and Intel fit into all of this? Um, yeah, I think AMD's come out with some, recently come out with some chips that are kind of more competitive um, and likely to, to, you know, be a bit more of a an option for people develop, developing models. Um, Intel is kind of, I mean, it's it's trying to get back into the game of making these, but it's very it's very behind. But it's got a huge amount of of um, money from the U.S. government to try and improve what it's doing so that would that would actually that could include making chips for nvidia they they want to do that they want to try and have this cutting edge process but they're also looking to to develop their own 
their own um, chips somewhere down the line. I think they're a long way, a long way off. Mm -hmm. so. They've been on a bit of a press blitz recently. You wrote about them in Wired.com last week. Yeah, they, well, they they've um, they are receiving a huge. I mean, it's reported, but um, I think it's fair to say they're going to receive a huge injection of cash from the Chips Act. And this is the U.S. trying to, the U.S. government is trying to make sure that America is competitive when it comes to making chips because they're they're worried about the supply chain. What could happen if um, access to CSMC or Samsung was cut off? So they're they're determined for them to to make a comeback. And Intel has produced started to produce chips that are much more uh, close to TSMC. They've been following this really aggressive path, and they announced that Microsoft was going to be making its AI chips on its platform. So yeah, it remains to be seen if they can how how great a comeback they can make. I'm I'm curious about the other side of that, like with the U.S. government trying to support, you know, homegrown chip fabs and get more of this technology built in the United States. It also has put export controls on that technology, right? So that we can't share our latest technological advancements with other countries, particularly with China. Mm -hmm. Can can one of you explain how this is helping shape the industry? Well, I can answer for NVIDIA, and then maybe Will can go into a little bit more depth about the broader industry. But NVIDIA has been affected by the export controls. These were first announced in August of 2022. There have since been uh, some updates to the export controls. But basically, NVIDIA had to start making or tweaking its chips so that they, they were control compliant and they could still ship to China because China is obviously a very important market for NVIDIA as it is for a lot of tech companies. But the, the goal here is that the US and other Western countries have the quote unquote best technology, access to the most advanced technology, and that we're not just giving that technology away to China. And so NVIDIA wanted to continue to sell in that market, but they had to change. It's like it's like tweaking the formula sure. you know, to make sure that uh, they weren't selling the best stuff there. It's also affecting their data center business as well. Will, do you have a sense of how that's affecting the broader chip industry? I think it's one of the more fascinating uh, moves in tech policy that the US government has made, certainly in recent years, because they're basically cutting off one of the most lucrative um, and important industries, access to the biggest market and the fastest growing market to try and maintain this technological edge. And people within the chip industry are quite worried, I think rightly, that China is going to simply, it's going to, this is simply going to encourage Chinese companies to be more competitive and to, to gain more um, gain more of an edge. The, the whole rationale is that it's so difficult to do chip making and all of the components and technologies and hardware you need come from American allies or America. And then, so you can, you can limit that, but there have been some, some recent moves to suggest that China may be moving more quickly in, in developing more cutting edge chips. Mm -hmm. So let me ask both of you guys a question. AI is so obviously imperfect, especially in the whole era of generative AI. Mistakes, hallucinations, biases, and that can be as inconsequential as it performs simple math wrong, like when we all know the answer to two plus two is four. Or it can be as consequential as a self-driving car not recognizing a human being that has fallen down in the road, or it could be part of an erroneous drone strike. This is really, really serious stuff. And I, I'm wondering if the companies that are not just hardware makers, but also platform companies and software makers, 
what happens around public sentiment of AI and those companies in particular when things go wrong? You know, NVIDIA has the ability to say right now, we're just the hardware maker. Yes, we have a platform, that CUDA platform that all the developers are locked into, but like we just make the hardware. If you're Google or Microsoft or Amazon and you really own that full stack of AI computing, what happens when things go wrong? One, well, one of the things that you're alluding to is like um, things can go wrong with machine learning systems in completely different ways. I think this is uh, so mm-hmm. it, a big question out there, say in self-driving cars, is how you determine where the the error or the, the problem occur, occurred. And so that and that can be quite difficult when you're using machine learning, which is kind of inherently probabilistic, as well as code that follow certain rules or hardware that follows certain rules. So if you could follow it back to a buggy element of a chip, I guess you could you could point the finger at them. But um, I think that that's, that's one of the things that actually they're trying to work out in a lot of industries that are increasingly depending on AI is like h- how you even determine where errors come from, how you figure out how reliable something is, um, which isn't, isn't a normal kind of kind of engineering because you're dealing with these systems which don't actually behave the same way when you run them twice. So you have to kind of engineer around that. I have been tickled, amused by the fact that the revolution that we're seeing on the ground is a chatbot revolution. Everybody is very, very excited about chatbots. But I do think it's useful at looking how this is going to be adopted into society, right? Because chatbots are very visceral. People have conversations with their phones. People have conversations with a customer service agent that may or may not be a human. Um, People can interact with like an AI version of their favorite celebrity in virtual reality. It's novel. It's kind of useful. And when it does the thing that you want it to do, then it feels like the future, right? It feels like magic. It feels like you just experienced what the future is going to look like. And I think the big leap is going to be when the when we learn that some of the systems that oppress us, things like banking, admissions to colleges, mm-hmm. housing, job applications, housing, healthcare, yep. <laughs> law enforcement, right. when those systems become more and more reliant on machine intelligence and we notice that the oppression is staying the same or getting the or getting worse and it is not really helping us that our perception of these things are the future cool will change to these things are the future this sounds terrible so i don't really know what to say about hallucinations because i think you really have to be like embedded in the tools and really using the tools in order to see those those smaller more nuanced problems and to gain an understanding of them and like most people and by most people i mean like 95% of the people out there are not deep in those tools and they're not super familiar with them but they are encountering them whether they know it or not so i think the next couple of years are going to be wild there's just so much potential for additional layers of obfuscation. Yes. Not being able to actually pinpoint where the liability should be. Yes. Yes. And it's it's really, it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be, people are going to get even more upset about, at tech companies and billionaires and you know all the things that they're upset about now. Does that upset you, Mike? I know you love billionaires. <laughs> I, 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 I love them as people, yes. <laughs> they're great people. I'm sure some of them. I've been thinking about this with with in the context of self-driving cars because on the one hand, I think it's really shocking that they test in, by you know in some certain ways it's really insane that they test these 
experimental vehicles on the road with pedestrians who haven't signed up for it at all. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, 35,000 people die a year because of terrible human drivers. Mm -hmm. And like, you don't, we haven't had that sort of any kind of public discourse about that, right? It's just kind of being done by the companies that have the most money. But it, I mean, it is a in really interesting thing to think about those, mm -hmm. how to weigh those things. It's interesting to think about the blind spots. I mean, one of the hardware companies that's powering self-driving cars, uh, someone running one of the labs told me that they realized after they started deploying the cars, they hadn't tested for Halloween. <laughs> Truly, they hadn't tested for when people are crossing the street on a dark night wearing all different kinds of costumes that might obfuscate them as human beings. Right. And they had to go back and test that. Is it a pantomime horse? with two humans or is it an actual horse with no humans right is that really batman yeah all right well we're not going to be able to answer all of these questions on this week's podcast but hopefully we gave you a good primer on nvidia and where it's going and will we very much appreciate you being a part of that we're going to take another quick break and then come back with all of our recommendations Hey everybody, it's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. All right, Will, what is your recommendation? All right, my recommendation is this application called WhisperKit. Um, it's from a company called ArgMax, which was founded by some Apple developers who left to do their own thing. And I figured it's appropriate because it's a good example of of the importance of the edge. So this isn't this isn't like sending your stuff to the cloud. It's it, you can do quite advanced voice transcription, which is obviously important for journalists and other people on your computer using. Um, they use some software that came from OpenAI, but they just optimized it very much for your own hardware. And it's a good example of how um, maybe more, maybe a lot, of, a lot of AI is also going to happen on the edge as well as in the cloud. And what are you using it for? Recording everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you well, have I your own speech <laughs> recognition <laughs> applications that you're running. On yeah, your just home just all the all the time, and I can just remember everything. I can just. Um, settle arguments by winding back the tape and playing what, what people said. <laughs> How many arguments do you get into? <laughs> no, I, well, no, you don't strike me as argumentative. I, I, you'd be surprised, but I, <laughs> no, I don't really use it for that. I, I was, I was using one of these cloud platforms for transcription, but um, I wanted something that wasn't. I, I kept running into the limit of how much I could record, which actually was very annoying, and, it, and they're quite expensive. Um, and I figured it'd be interesting to play with this for transcribing um, interviews. And pretty accurate? Yeah, it's pretty accurate, right? It uses this thing called Whisper from OpenAI, which is pretty pretty good. Yeah, you know, you have to have to go back, make sure you're not misquoting people, but yeah, pretty good. How secure is it? Would you, would you use it to process your most sensitive interviews? Well, it's all running on my computer, so hmm. assuming my computer hasn't been hacked, which is... 
you know, never a given. Um, I th it's, it certainly seems more secure than sending it to the cloud. Interesting. Yeah, I use Google's uh, transcription service, which is pretty darn good. And it does it on device, but then I do send it to the cloud. You use Otter, right? I use Mechanical Turk. Oh, oh. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> wow. Throwback. I use, I use Alice. Uh, Alice AI. It's it's another one of the of the, the like the front ends for. I think they use Google's transcription service. Um, but also, I have a Pixel phone, so if I record on my Pixel yeah. phone, then it's it's free to just it Same. just freely translates it. So right, yeah. My second phone's a Pixel. Yep, my second phone. For all my iPhone. shady activity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, we're going to link that in the show notes. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, get your garden ready. This is this is my Clapping. recommendation. So this week, February turns into March, mm -hmm. and in just a couple more weeks, it will be spring. So spring will have sprung, and it is time to plant the vegetables and the fruits and the flowers that you would like to be eating this summer. If you live in a slightly warmer part of the country, like we do here in California, or if you live like in the south, uh, then you can start planting outdoors pretty much now or next week. Uh, if you live in a colder part, you will have to use a greenhouse or uh, you can do like I did and get a seedling mat, which is like a heated mat that you put your seedlings on. And you can leave them, you know, on your enclosed porch or in your basement or your attic and make sure that you can you can grow healthy plants. So um, I, like many people, got into gardening a little bit more than usual during the pandemic because uh, all of a sudden I had all this time at home that I could pay attention to the plants. Now that I'm in the office most of the days, my garden has gone into disarray. There's a lot of weeds. Um, I've switched to succulents for most of it, but I am determined to do some California wildflowers this year and to do some peppers that we can all enjoy, um, either fresh or pickled this summer. <laughs> uh, so I would say that if you are a person who has always thought about gardening or if you used to be a serious gardener, this is a big reminder. It's a big flashing light sign that now is the time to plant again. This is a great recommendation. Thank you. Are you are you going to plant anything? I have already started with the plants. I recently picked up some dichondra silver, some lotus. Mm -hmm. I have angel vine going pretty strong right now under a skylights in can my you, kitchen. Can you eat any of these things? No, but I have one. I have one plant. You know this plant, Kevin. <laughs> uh, it was rescued from a demolition site during the pandemic. My neighbor gave me this like scrawny little thing in a pot, and um, I grew it's a lemon tree, and I grew it. I mean, it's really healthy now. Mm -hmm. It's attached to a lattice and. Um, yeah, I water it. I give it plant food. It provided a lot of lemons last year, and I'm already seeing the the green ones are there now. Great. And like the what is that called? Not ripe. Yeah. Unripe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Kevin the lemon tree is doing, and actually our friends Syrah and Adrian named it when they were drunk one night. Guys, <laughs> I was like, okay, it's Kevin. So Kevin's doing great. Everyone come over for lemons. Nice. But yeah, I know. I love it. It's great. There are some other plants. There's a Japanese maple in front of my place, but that's I don't have to water that or anything. The Japanese maple houses the um, the little nest from the hummingbirds last year. Okay, Lauren, I just have to point out that all these uh -huh. things that you're mentioning are plants and trees. I know, I know, but <laughs> they're, they're still plants. You're talking about planting. They are plants. You plant plants. Try this year. Try herbs. Okay. Chard. Yeah. Leafy greens, okay. Peppers, okay. Get them going. My my brother actually got me a, an herb garden from Christmas, and I sent it back. 
Is it like one of the click and grow ones? Yeah, it was like one of those indoor ones. Okay. I didn't want it inside, but maybe I'll do it outside. Does your brother listen to the show and will now be offended? He does. Hi, Gerald. Yeah, <laughs> he does. Well, he listened to the, he, yes, he listened to the episode where we were talking about the Bono book. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, another gift that you returned. Yeah. Um, before we go too far okay. into into, okay. into yes. Plantasia, what is Plantasia. your recognition? Plantasia. <laughs> Um, what is your recommendation? My recommendation is a book that is soon spawning a television show, although I did just look it up. I thought the TV show was coming out soon, and it's there's no release date for it yet. It's later in 2024. The book is called Say Nothing. It's by our colleague at The New Yorker, Patrick Radden Keefe. Mike is smiling right now because we were saying earlier how saying the phrase my colleague can be so self-aggrandizing <laughs> because I don't actually know Patrick Radden Keefe. I admire his writing a great deal. He used to write for Wired. I read more than one of his books. You told me that this morning and I was very excited. He worked, what is it called? Danger Zone? Danger Room. <laughs> Danger it was our room. defense tech section. Yeah. So he, how long ago was this? Oh, I don't know. 2008, 2009. Probably. I mean, he's like in our Slack and we're talking about him right now, but I've never met him. Uh, I think his writing is brilliant. I've read at least a couple of his books. Um, Say Nothing is about the troubles in Ireland and it's it's multiple stories interwoven and it's one of the best books i read in in 2023 by far i read it towards the end of the year so it's still fresh in the brain it came out sooner though i think 2019 and now has been turned into a television show it has been snapped up by fx here in the united states it's going to be airing on hulu at some point this year we don't know when though so keep an eye out for that and in the meantime read the book nice it's great nice our colleague by our colleague. <laughs> all right. That's our show this week. Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on mm, the site formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> Worst name change ever. Blue Ski. Just Blue Sky. That's right. Just check the show notes. Our producer is the excellent Boone Ashworth. And we'll be back next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.